Hello, this is Risa Courier, host of the Alliance podcast, coming to you from the Humane Rescue Alliance in Washington, D.C. Today, I have the privilege to be joined by some really amazing guests, Brandi Kensel. She's the General Counsel and Director of Advocacy for the San Francisco SPCA, and Jennifer Fearing, the President of Fearless Advocacy. So welcome to both of you. I am really grateful to both of you for making the time to join me on a Saturday. I realize it's it's an incredibly busy period for all of us, um, but this is a conversation I've been eager to have for a really long time. Jennifer, you and I have spoken on a couple occasions about the need for nonprofits that operate in the direct care space, such as animal shelters, to jump into the ring and have a bigger role in advocacy. In fact, during my conversations with you, I've actually jumped off the sofa a few times to grab a pen and a paper to take down some notes. So that's not a normal thing for me to do um, when talking with a girlfriend. But I'm, I'm really excited about what you have to say in terms of creating advocacy programs. Um, that's something that we were in the process of launching ourselves at HRA. And been really impressed with how our community has responded. It just seemed like a natural next step for our stakeholders. And 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 part of that is, is logical because we're living in Washington, D.C., where everyone is focused on policy. But so, Jennifer, first, I, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your background. You've had a really interesting path in your career. And you started you started your lobbying career in California working for the Humane Society of the US and you were focused on solely on animal welfare. And now while you still represent many animal welfare clients, you've expanded your portfolio and you also represent clients from other causes and movements. So could you Tell me a little bit about the trajectory of your career and and also what you've learned from this current diverse list of clients that informs your work in animal welfare. Well, sure, sure. Um, and Risa, likewise, I have really appreciated over the years the conversations we have had and I'm so I'm going to say proud of the efforts that you're making on behalf of Humane Rescue Alliance and grateful that you're there as our kind of sister from another mister on the East Coast, jumping into the advocacy fray. But indeed, my advocacy career actually started at least 10 years before it became my near full-time focus as HSUS first California state director back in 2009. Um, prior to that, I had served for a while as the president and CEO of what was then called United Animal Nations. It's now called Red Rover, primarily at the time a animal disaster relief organization. But while I served as their CEO, I was a founding member of an effort by a number of animal protection organizations here in California that formed what we called the California Animal Association. And it was a formal lobbying coalition, which under California state law needs to be comprised of at least 10 organizations who agree to work collaboratively on state legislative efforts and at the time, that coalition was deemed necessary because there wasn't any single organization, national or otherwise, that was investing any meaningful resources in animal protection advocacy at the state level. Um, and so each of our organizations had a little bit to chip in. And we did a lot of our own lobbying and learned the state legislative process. And we also pooled some resources to hire a lobbyist to represent our coalition. And it was pretty formal. We developed ground rules and a code of conduct for working together that I sometimes miss, actually, and want to dust off for the more informal coalitions I'm in now. You know, what happened is over time, the major national organizations and some grassroots organizations here in California started engaging more of their own lobbying resources. And that that broader coalition was deemed sort of less necessary in some ways, um, because everyone started really engaging more, particularly, you know, HSUS, the ASPCA, our State Humane Association, which is called the California Animal Welfare Association, and others now all either have in-house folks who lobby primarily as their job function at the state level or contract lobbyists. So, in any event, so that's just a little background, a, a little historic history of how California's sort of animal advocacy has evolved and my own career along with it. But 
Yes, I did. I was the state director for HSUS for a number of years. And then honestly, what I saw was a real need by other other organizations whose missions I really believed in, whether they were, you know, wildlife protection organizations like Defenders of Wildlife, ocean protection groups like Oceana. I I really wanted to be able to take some of what I learned, quite frankly, in animal protection advocacy and apply some of those skills um, towards other causes I cared about. But along the way, I learned a lot as well about getting it, you know, it got me into other forums and other decision-making venues at the state. It introduced me to new, not just NGO relationships, but just key decision-maker and bureaucrat um, relationships. And it got me into a place where I had more chits to trade. You know, lobbying is a very much a transactional sort of game, quote unquote. And mm-hmm. it just got me into a lot more conversations, into a lot more coalitions and a lot more cross-pollination was possible. So I, I actually think I've become a more potent animal protection lobbyist, even as I spend a smaller percentage, you know, less of my overall time on it. Well, and that makes sense. And you said something really, that's really key about coalition building. And I feel like animal welfare organizations are just starting to enter into that space and looking around and seeing, okay, who can I form a relationship with that there may be some overlap in the issue that I'm working on. And so a lot of shelters right now are surveying the landscape and realizing they have a lot more in common with a lot of these social services and human services agencies than they originally thought. And likewise, with other mission-oriented organizations like environmental groups, we there's definitely a lot of overlap when you think about wildlife. So how has your work and perspective in animal welfare been informed by the lessons that you are learning and advocacy and political engagement a lot with working with these other clients a lot like the environmental movement has been working on these advocacy efforts it seems a lot longer than animal welfare organizations have been and they've been launching a lot of national and international campaigns and they're sort of at a different place than we are. They are, although I'll say that they almost in some sense, the sheer number of organizations involved in that and the wide variety I mean, of, of topics and issue areas. I mean, we sort of, one of the things I'm fascinated by is when I used to be, when I was with Humane Society of the U.S., people would say at the Capitol, oh, well, you know, you only work on animal issues. And I'd kind of laugh thinking, yeah. Good Lord, that's that's the entire span of species other than humans. And quite frankly, also a lot about humans and every right. single you know thing that can uh, in, interact or affect them. That is not a trivial amount of expertise and knowledge and things to know about, not just the law, but science and biology, et cetera, and behavior. And so I, I always kind of giggled at that, whereas in the environmental community, of course, they have a whole myriad issues also, but it seems there's almost an organization dedicated to every single one of those issues. And so interestingly, I think they can be a, um, a challenging group of cats to herd because they oh, all have right. very individually, they have very specific interests. And what happens at the Capitol is there's dozens and dozens and dozens of different environmental bills. And it can be easy for legislators to kind of be with a handful, you know, be okay on a handful of those and shove off the rest. And so the priorities, you know, as a movement for the environmental movement are they they don't agree with what those are, you know, across the whole the whole cause. And so they end up cannibalizing and competing with each other, I see. So that's that's actually been a lesson that I've learned that to try to that makes the case for far more coordination within the animal protection field so that, you know, it would be smarter to have two or three things that everyone agrees each year, you know, are priorities and work to make sure every uh, politician understands that you're with us or against us sort of on making progress on those. And, and, and that's, that's that we've still got some work to do on that, but it's certainly a lesson I've observed. I, I think the second biggest lesson I've learned, and it's not so much, some of it comes from working with environmental organizations. Some comes from working with groups that care about human services issues like the California Association of Nonprofits, 
or Meals on Wheels, California, um, the California Association of Museums that I work with. It's just how important budget advocacy is. You know, state governments' budgets are a reflection of their priorities and a reflection of their values. And in California, at least in January of this year, we started with a $222 billion state budget. And historically, California animals issues, you know, and, and shelters get zero of those dollars, you know, other than advocating for certain, you know, maybe wildlife law enforcement at the Department of Fish and Wildlife, you're kind of hard pressed to identify a single one of those dollars that are going towards keeping animals, you know, out of harm's way. And so with those other organizations, it, their vast majority of their advocacy efforts are actually going towards trying to influence those expenditures of state dollars. So that was a super eye-opener for me, and I've really tried to um, move in a direction where animal protection organizations are thinking about and advocating for resources as well. Um, you know, we can talk about COVID's impact on that. Yeah. Thwarting some of those ambitions, but um, I think that thinking about that and the, and the prioritization is going to be important going forward. Well, and that's that's a really important point. I think for a lot of animal welfare agencies, we've just never had an expectation that there is state and federal funds available to support our efforts, that we've been fueled by donors and foundations. And but something really important happened uh, earlier this year in California. And as part of the the fiscal year 2021 20, state budget per Proposal, Governor Newsom announced a plan to invest $50 million over five years. And that is was a program designed to assist and advance California animal shelters. So can you talk a little bit about that program? And I know you're dealing with some budget hearings right now. And uh, what was involved in that? How did you guys organize yourselves to ask for a pot of money that significant? Well, I think it's a story that's really worth telling because it, it, was, it played out over a number of years, to be honest, even going back two decades in 1998, when advocates were successful in passing a law in California that set a policy goal for the state that no healthier adoptable dog or cat be euthanized in an animal shelter. And while the state sent that policy expectation, they never wrote a check to directly try to prompt that outcome. And I'll spare you some details um, along the way where um, efforts were made to kind of seek reimbursement from the state on that front. But suffice to say, um, over the last decade, there hasn't been a dollar that's gone towards supporting that goal. But obviously, it's a goal that all animal shelters have continued to make progress towards. And when Governor Newsom was running for governor a couple of years ago, interestingly, he had had as mayor of San Francisco a few years earlier made some, been involved himself in some unfortunate advocacy in the wake of the Diane Whipple dog mauling case, which was very high profile, that he supported, you know, basically breed-specific legislation. And when he was running for governor, that came back up. There were whole Facebook groups dedicated of pit bull lovers, you know, dedicated to dogging him, pun intended, around that. And his campaign actually reached out to me for thoughts on how they could address it. And of course, I was like, well, number one, you could admit you were wrong and you and I can help you with some messaging about what you've learned since then, which they were eager and, and happily pivoted towards. But I also said, you know, as lieutenant governor and in other roles you've had, you actually quite quite a significant amount of bona fides um, in animal protection. And the governor, when he was in other positions, had often endorsed legislation we worked on. His father started the Mountain Lion Foundation, which is one of my clients, many years ago. And so wow. I helped them frame an actual, I helped worked with them to frame an actual animal protection campaign plat- that platform, a piece that was added to his campaign. And one of those elements was helping California keep its 20-year-old commitment towards shelter animals. And so that was a tee-up um, that w- worked on a few years ago when he was running, that when he began- came into office, was the onus was on us to think through what would it look like? Like, what is a proposal that would actually make mm. that work? And so long story short, some of us worked with Dr. Hurley and her team at the UC Davis Shelter Medicine Program, and we came up with a proposal. We had a very 
I think ultimately, obviously, effective advocacy campaign, um, in, a very insider campaign to persuade the governor to include it in his budget. And lo and behold, in January, he did. So that was like, as I said, a multi-year effort that, and, and, and frankly, what happens with a lot of advocacy, some, some fast thinking in an opportunistic moment <laughs> to, to try to make a major step forward. Wow. And that is such an important illustration of really why it's important to have someone with their ear to the ground and investing in those relationships, because that opportunity could have been easily missed. Well, and let me and let me because I know you'll shift to Brandy in a minute. Let me not miss yeah, yeah. a moment to show you how that her work and mine connected as well. When I left HSUS, one of my first clients was the San Francisco SPCA. Who, um, Brandy picked me up to help them in Sacramento because yeah. they wanted to increase their voice. But in fact, another fortuitous moment along the along this journey was just as we were trying to persuade the governor to include this in his budget package. Um, his sister-in-law walked into it, one of the San Francisco SPCA veterinary clinics, and made sure to offer her assistance if we ever needed it. And um, we took wow. her up. We took her up on that. And so, yes, the relationships, the community, you know, crosstalk and communications. If Brandy and I hadn't been coordinating at that time, she wouldn't have even known that was an, an offer that we could make immediate, even you know, use of. And yeah, I just, I, I, it speaks very much to, this is how things work in other places, right? The relationships, um, and people are always kind of have their eye out for opportunities to move the needle. We, we have to operate that way too. Right, right. As the saying goes, if you don't have a seat at the table, you are on the menu. So I'm glad, I'm glad you ladies were at the table. So Brandy, um, you have an impressive title as the general counsel and director of advocacy at San Francisco SPCA. So this is an unusual position at a, at a shelter. Many, many shelters don't have these kinds of staffing roles. So could you, could you talk a little bit about how you ended up in this position, what, what your career trajectory looked like? Yeah, no problem. So I've been an attorney for about 15 years. Um, and I joined the San Francisco SPCA about eight years ago, a little over eight years ago. And at the time, they actually didn't have much like, you know, probably every other shelter in California, they didn't have an attorney on board. And so the position was one essentially that was created. Um, so I was a volunteer. I have an interesting kind of side story. I competed on a reality television show, I ended up winning it. And so I had a little bit of time. I was had some like downtime. I was being paid as part of a, my earnings kind of from the show. And I had a lot of time that I usually didn't have when I was a, a full-time attorney to volunteer. So I went to the SPCA and it was really great because it was the first time living in San Francisco. I was not from San Francisco, um, that I felt a real kind of sense of community. I felt that I had sort of found my people, mm. if you will. And I just loved it. I loved the organization. I just, I just, everything about it, I loved it. And so... I started to volunteer and more, a little more time, more heavily. And I got to know one of the co-presidents pretty well. And, you know, I just sort of kind of became a little bit curious about the organization. Here it was, it was like this marquee institution in San Francisco. You know, San Francisco's BCA has been around for more than 150 years. We're the fourth oldest, you know, oldest humane society kind of a thing west of the Mississippi. Like, you know, I mean, we, 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 we've been around for a while and yet they didn't have an attorney. They weren't thinking about some issues as probably as sophisticated as they need to, to be. And so I started combing through their 990s and I noticed that they were spending a lot of money on outside legal fees. And so, you know, one day I offered to take the co-president to lunch and, and I just said, hey, can I bring you lunch? I'd love to just have a chat with you about your legal affairs at the SPCA. And I pitched the job and I told her that, wow. look, you guys are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees. You know, you have this large organization and I can really help with you um, to manage, manage costs, you know, help kind of class it up, if you will. And we just started in discussions and the job wasn't created that day. You know, I went back to my regular job eventually, which was just uh, working as a corporate attorney in a really large law firm. And then one day I got a call from the co-presidents and they said, hey, you know, that conversation that we had, you know, let's say, you know, nine months ago or whatnot, uh, we'd like to explore it further with you. And so it ended up being that they brought me on board and I was brought on board as a corporate attorney at the time. 
The bulk of my work when my role started was to help manage the day-to-day operations for the organizations, keep outside legal fees down. Um, there's a lot of bequest processing. There's a lot of just kind of, you know, public, you know, just the day-to-day that comes with um, managing an organization for 300 people and two campuses. Um, and so for the for a while, that's what I did. But I was always interested in advocacy. I mean, truly, I wouldn't have joined the San Francisco SPCA just to manage its like corporate affairs. You know, you have to find your joy in animal welfare. And that wasn't necessarily mine. Um, It was sort of a means to the end to get my foot in the door. And I always had this eye toward advocacy. And so I started to, but I didn't necessarily have the background in that. Um, I had worked as a staffer in in the U.S. Senate and in the California State Senate when I was in college. But you know, uh, after law school, I, I had just worked in firms. And so I audited a course at McGeorge School of Law, even though I had been an attorney for quite some time. Um, but I wanted to learn more about the Cali- you know, California state legislative process. And so that was actually some really sage advice that Jennifer Fearing gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, look, if you're going to do work, you have to get a little bit smarter about it. And of course, that she was correct, as she almost always is. And so I drove once a week from San Francisco, drove up to Sacramento, audited this course. I think I kind of freaked the kids out. Not that everybody was a kid, but not even like an attorney for a while. So I didn't care about the grade. So I would just kind of roll it. Like no notes, like no, you know, like just kind of hanging out. Like if you took a class and you were just genuinely interested in the content, like that's the way I approached it. And oh my God, the professor said she was the very best student in the class. Of course. When you're taking it, you know, a little bit, when, when the pressure's off, it's, it's much easier to perform, right? So loved it, really learned a lot, and just continued to kind of roll in these circles, you know, um, obviously, you know, really look up to Jennifer and learned a lot from her and, and others kind of in similar circles. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that last year, the San Francisco SPCA, we hired a junior attorney who reports to me now, and she's the one that gets to um, basically manage the day-to-day headaches of the, of the legal affairs of the San Francisco SPCA. And now I'm 100% focused on our advocacy initiatives. So um, that's kind of the, the long-winded version of it. It was a position that didn't exist. It wasn't exactly what I wanted it to be eight years ago. Um, and now it is exactly what I want it to be, and I love it. That is amazing. That's such a cool story about how you just got in there and went for it and followed your passion. And, of course, Jennifer Fearing swoops in. I love how you called it sage advice. I, too, have been the recipient of Jennifer advice, including my current position. I, I, I probably wouldn't be here without a little uh, loving uh, shove from Jennifer. So we are all um, in her debt. <laughs> That's so great. And the great thing about like here, I'm just going to you can cut this out if you want. But here's my plug for Jennifer. Just like a, she's a true woman's woman, right? Yeah. She's she up people behind her that are following her footsteps. And I think that as a movement, you know, we need to do that, right? Yes. We need to prep the next generation. I do that with my junior attorney. I believe in her. She does excellent work, you know, and and lifting up and bringing people along with you is we're just much more effective as a movement the more that we do that. I, I'm 100% with you. And it's I think it's incumbent upon all of us to, to try to mentor and support others that are uh, trying to make this a career because it's it's as you pointed out it's really difficult to get into this work and then and then you are sort of having to reinvent yourself and reevaluate the landscape to stay in this line of work because you know it's it's transitional thing our needs are changing our goals are changing the work that we do to service the animals in our community is constantly evolving and um, but that's how you have an that's around for 150 years and will be around for 150 years in the future. So, so tell me a little bit about what what kind of advocacy work you're doing now. What what are the the policy issues you're focusing on? Is it primarily state? Do you deal with the San Francisco, the city of San Francisco, a lot? Yeah. Well, you know, we're fortunate, right? San Francisco is consistently, I think, ranked one of the most humane cities in the nation, if not the world. And so, um, you know, we're really fortunate that we can kind of rest at ease knowing that the home front is taken care of. And that's not to say that, you know, 
the good work doesn't need to still go on in our community. It does every day. You know, it's our primary focus. But, um, you know, sort of in the vein of uh, on the individual level, lifting up others and, and bringing them along uh, with you, you know, the San Francisco SPCA is fortunate that, you know, based on our relative position of affluence, it is incumbent upon us as an organization to try and help lift up other shelters um, in California that might not be experiencing the same life-saving success that we are. And so a lot of what we do on the advocacy front is to help other shelters in California. Um, and we do this through a variety of reasons. You know, Jennifer is our lobbyist in Sacramento. She's the best in the business. She's unbelievable. She's a force. <laughs> um, and so we're fortunate to have her on staff and have had her, or, you know, have her on contract and have benefited from her expertise for a number of years. So, you know, there's a lot of coalition work in Sacramento that we do with state legislation. And we're really starting to focus also, you know, it's kind of a two-pronged strategy on helping individual communities. Because a lot of the barriers to living in California aren't necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach. You can do a state, you know, legislative push in Sacramento to kind of, you know, raise the bar for all. But, you know, what good does it do if there's a really fantastic push at the state level, but there are kind of local ordinances or local practices at the shelter level that are inhibiting life-saving or, you know, hampering welfare of animals while they're in shelters. So um, we do a lot of community-based work. And our first dabble in this, um, you know, we had done it for a while through our transfer uh, coalitions. And, you know, we are a shelter that heavily relies on bring, there are more, um, we have more spots in our, our shelter for adoptions than we do have animals in San Francisco. So we often go out into other communities in California and transfer them into our shelter to adopt them out. But in 2012, this is one of the projects that I oversaw. Um, we wanted to test to see if we could do a deeper dive in a partner community and help lift that community up. And we identified the city of Stockton as that community. And so back in 2012, the city of Stockton was then the largest city in the United States at the time to claim bankruptcy. So it was, it was, it was a hard place for humans um, to be living in at the time. And, you know, when we see that there are strugglings, obviously, in the at the human level, those are often reflected in other social services areas and, and animals were struggling too. And so we went in and we did one of the most robust resource lending partnerships at the time that had ever been done. We put an entire, they didn't even have a, a veterinarian on staff in the city of Stockton, even though they were taking in 14,000 animals a year, you know, disease was rampant. Almost 100% of their cats were being euthanized once they were brought into the shelter. Their um, life release rate was hovering at 32%. Um, so it was not a great place. And so we went in there and really offered some really targeted assistance, put in some staff, some San Francisco SBC staff, changed around their policies, changed their ordinances, and in just five short years, we turned that shelter around from being a, you know, like a 30% live release rate to over 80 consistently. So that, that is incredible, incredible. And so I want to, I want to unpack this a little bit because this is, this is something that we, we also work on at the Human Rescue Alliance because we, we also believe we're a well-resourced shelter. We're in a big urban area that is, you know, the District of Columbia is amazing and supportive of us. And so we now have this opportunity to expand our wings and help other organizations and lend a helping hand. And, you know, just a few hundred miles from us are organizations that are really struggling under the weight of animal overpopulation. And so, you know, I, I'm just listening to what you've done. And it's incredible because you've really, you you touched every aspect of that organization. So it's, you know, you're not focusing just on the operational aspects, like, hey, how do you keep disease at bay? How do you clean cages? How do you, um, you know, motivate staff? But then you guys also expanded your the scope of your work. And you also said, we need to have the community support the shelter. The shelter serves the community. How do we do that? By having policies that support the work of the shelter. So, so when you talk about policy, I mean, a lot of people think about, you know, community cats and breed specific legislation. So what, what were you focusing on 
to help turn that shelter around? You know, we've <laughs> everything. Um, so I, everything. you know, it's so funny when I, <laughs> when I first started that project, they used to call me the crying lawyer. Um, <laughs> it was the name. I would go there. I'm serious. They were like, Oh, the crying lawyer is back. Um, because I was just so overwhelmed. I was so sad and I was just yes. sad. My heart broke for the animals, obviously, but my heart broke for the shelter workers that had to show up into this horrid environment. My heart broke for the community. You know, it was just all the things, right? And so when I say everything, literally everything, that shelter was incredibly underfunded. You know, some of the things that we were able to, to help them change, um, you know, I'll give one example, flexible fee adoption pricing, right? They weren't able to flexible fee adoption pricing because they had some archaic thing written in their local ordinance and then the you know they were operating under the police department and so um they had you know just that the police department said that you couldn't do it and really what we had to just go in there is say you know look this is going to help this is going to be a win-win for the animals and and your and their community and it's actually going to be a money saving thing and so in just a couple of months we were able to pass through city council allowing for the shelter to have flexible fee adoption pricing okay well as soon as we did that Adoptions more than tripled. Wow. There were improvements for at-risk animals, you know, pit bull-type um, animals and cats that weren't previously getting out alive. Um, and they raised $100,000 in donations because some major donor was so impressed that things were turning around at the shelter. There was obviously positive media surge. And, you know, those life-saving changes that we made, and this was years ago, but this continues today. This is well over five years later. You know, they are still like the, you know, like they should be able to do using that, that, that adoption pricing tool in order to incentivize adoptions. I remember one of the most gratifying things that I, I, I faced or I, you know, I was able to witness when I was working with the Stockton shelter was seeing a line outside the shelter to adopt after these legal roadblocks were removed um, and allow the shelter to do the right thing. Right. And so. You know, that's just one example of many, 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 many things that we changed in their local code. And I will say the biggest challenge toward the tail end, once everything was operating smoothly, because it was actually most of the life-saving improvements that we experienced or that Stockton experienced out there happened within the first two years. Um, and so the, the tail end of the project was really trying to get toward a sustainability model and how do we, how does San Francisco pull out of this community and and let this community flourish on its own, which it certainly is today. And, you know, the biggest battle toward the end was getting the shelter funding increased. And that was a battle with yeah. the city manager's office. And, you know, thinking creatively, I mean, we had pensioned employees in the in the shelter and in, and part of, you know, Stockton emergency emerging from bankruptcy is they weren't going to add pensioned employees to their city roster anymore. Mm. And so we actually forming um, and partnering with a local nonprofit to house a number of shelters and basically just, you know, have the friends of operating models, supplementing shelter operations out there um, and negotiating really, really hard with the city to have them increase the budget by, you know, it, it was over $3 million a year. And so um, and that's still going on today and we're not there anymore. But I will tell you, the city manager's office absolutely did not want to pick up my phone calls, right? It would be hmm. me and I'd be like, it's me and we're going to pull out, you know, you guys need to fund the shelter. You have to say, sustain these life-saving successes. And, you know, the only way you can do that is if you have staff. Right. And so to Jennifer's point, it's like, it's that budget allocation is often some of the hardest stuff, but some of the most impactful. Yes. And that you, you raise a really interesting point about, you know, the con contractual negotiations, because many shelters don't have access to legal counsel or a government affairs professional to kind of help walk them through uh, that process of, of negotiating contracts and and are often being underfunded and, you know, losing money on contracts. So you recently launched a really incredible program at the San Francisco SPCA called Shelter Pals. And it's, a, it, it's an effort to remedy this disparity. So could you tell me a little bit about this effort and, and what you hope to accomplish? Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're really excited about Shelter Pals. And, and you're right, you know, most 
California shelters operate without regular legal counsel or even policy advice in areas that are absolutely vital to their population, right? And so the result is this serious ineffectiveness um, and often sort of systemic, chronic roadblocks to life-saving and improved welfare for their animals. Um, and I always tell people, I feel like, you know, the longer kind of that I had worked in the industry, granted, it, you know, I haven't been there here too long, but you see these, we're treating these symptoms of a problem rather than addressing the broken system themselves. And so what we really wanted to do at the San Francisco SPCA was take a, take a, take a step back and say like, hey, you know, shelter law and policy from our experience is completely insufficient to address really important companion animal welfare issues in California, right? And knowing that, we have formed this new program and Shelter Pals, um, and it stands for Shelter Policy and Legal Services. And the goal of the program is to provide free legal and policy to California shelters, you know, through these collaborative efforts of in-house, like myself, counsel, and pro bono attorneys and other experts like Jennifer Fearing. And uh, yeah, that's that's a program. We're really excited about it. It just launched in 2020. Um, so it's pretty it's pretty recent. <laughs> so so how is that launching a, a program of that is this ambitious and has a scope like this during a pandemic? How has this been received? Well, <laughs> it's been personally very interesting for me because I had a, um, a child in the pandemic and so I have an infant at home. So um, working on this program and launching it pandemic on top of it has been an interesting, my mat leave was 17 days. It was, it was quite the, it was interesting. And so personally, it was interesting. Professionally, it's also been interesting. If anything, I think the pandemic highlights the absolute necessity for this work. Um, It is only, you know, shining a, a, a spotlight on the need for targeted, concerted, legal and policy action to address some of these chronic issues. Um, You know, fortunately, we had done a lot of work behind the scenes. Um, So we had a really strong team of which, you know, Jennifer is part of. Um, We've had identified issues that we wanted to work in on in advance. So it's not like there's so many things to do in animal welfare. It's kind of like, how do you even pick? Yes. Um, So we had a Right. We had identified using a weighted ranking system, um, pretty sophisticated system that we had worked with some um, pro bono support from um, some Stanford Business School alumni that helped us with it to target the top issues that we wanted to do for our pilot. You know, and this was based on number of lives impacted, strategic importance, simplicity, you know, low risk and cost, kind of all this weighted average. Um, And so we had really clear um, things that we wanted to work with. But we also recognized at the onset the need to be nimble, right? Things happen mm-hmm. all the time that laid plans aside. And I think COVID is a really good example of that. Um, so we uh, pivoted, you know, we work on our priority issues as we are able, but we also are very much responsive to COVID because we want it to be contemporary, we want to actually be helping shelters. And so, you know, some of those things that we've been working on are in California, we needed to clarify shelter workers as essential. The original shelter in place order didn't designate animal shelter staff and volunteers and essentially humane law enforcement officers as essential workers. So, you know, with Jennifer's help and with our attorney's right. help, we helped, you know, correct that. We've been working on some interesting other COVID related projects. Um, but the the downside, I think, of, of operating in this environment is that I think I foresee the biggest barrier to a program like this to be sustaining the funding. Um, that's just the reality of working in a contract, you know, a, a, a recession type environment in which budgets are contracting left and right. You know, SBC certainly isn't immune from that. So you're working right now. I mean, it was really important um, to, to make sure shelters could continue operating as essential essential employees. So Jennifer, I'm going to go to you because I want to go back to another point you were making. You were just talking about, you know, the importance of um, organizations to to have a seat at the table because funding, um, otherwise they're going to miss out on funding opportunities. But right now, this is a really big moment in animal welfare because a lot of organizations are are using this time of this the pandemic is sort of a pause button where they're re-examining everything. And um, most shelters now have the majority of their adoptable animal population in foster homes. And so it's sort of this 
um, reckoning moment. Like, do we really need to be focusing so many resources on sheltering animals? Like, how about we, um, you know, retool a lot of our programs so we're supporting fostering and we're keeping animals with their people, and and that's where we invest our resources. And you have long been an advocate of saying to all kinds of direct care organizations, both human and animal, that you also need to be in the game. You need to be thinking about devoting your resources to lobbying and advocacy. So as organizations are rethinking, you know, how they're using their resources, what advice would you give them about getting involved in advocacy efforts? Well, you know, I, I, it's funny, I was just thinking as you were asking that question about how I really, really first got involved in animal welfare. And it was as a citizen advocate, right, who walked into my local animal shelter 20 plus years ago and was appalled at what I saw. And I, you know, I formed a citizen brigade that started showing up to our city council meetings and complaining about this, that or the other policy. And I think, I think for, I think in some ways shelters have been engaged, but on defense, right? Like they, and they, they have not, seen the value in turning those same citizen advocates around, you know, enrolling and and getting citizen advocates on their behalf, right, to like engage and utilize their power um, relationships within their communities to help reinforce either, you know, keep stave off budget cuts or to change positive, you know, local policies. But I, so I think in some ways, like we have these we have these involvements. We just haven't thought about turning them in the direction, um, turning our allies into our advocates and in, in that same way um, to for, push for what we want and what we need to, to operate. But, you know, I am I am kind of almost thrilled watching um, the changes that and the, the embrace. I mean, much like most of the world has suddenly embraced telework, something no right. boss, hardly any boss ever <laughs> thought was a good idea. And now you have major companies saying, huh, we might not ever go back <laughs> to the right. office in just two short months. Similarly, you know, you see this in animal welfare, folks really like re- rethinking what they're what they're doing and, and frankly, trusting their communities. Right. Like yes. seeing relationships with their communities and, and people as partners and people as in intrinsically good um, and, potent, you know, so many individuals and communities are just, um, you know, dormant resources. Right. To to be able to help us, if only we would trust them to help us. Um, and invite them to help us. So I I think this is a perfect moment. And frankly, it's going to be born of necessity as we go, because these these state budget cuts are going to trickle to local budget cuts. And we're all going to have to do even more with less. And I don't think it's feasible to go back. I don't I don't think we can fund business as usual, in, uh, certainly in the short run. Um, so I, I think it's really, it's a really critical moment to, for shelters to, to bust into the advocacy world where they haven't before. And you're going to have volunteers who aren't frankly a good fit for fostering, but they're an excellent fit for lobbying. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Yes. Well, and, and you have to engage those kind of people too, because like you said, otherwise they're going to be, they could be your adversaries and, you know, in some ways. So, so engaging them on behalf of good and using that energy and talent um, to further your mission is, is so key. Yeah, and I just I I think if nonprofits generally and then animal shelters specifically are not helping decide, you know, kind of what their future or the future of our communities look like, who will, you know, who will decide right. that? And um, you know, to me that's to me that's become a more interesting question than the, you know, than the are you on the table or, you know, at the table or on the yeah. menu. I I've started to think more like it's our it's a moral obligation for us to help mm. shape and form those decisions. And, and we're the, we're the voices of our communities and we're the servants of our communities. And so these decisions simply cannot get made without us. We have any expectation that they're going to result in the right, um, the right community outcomes. So I, I, I hope 
I hope that shelters are able to really like expand how they think about their volunteer force in this moment and roles they can create for volunteers. And in some ways, you know, some of the national organizations, Best Friend has, you know, citizen action teams, HSUS has had their state councils and district leaders and shelters can copy that model um, and enroll some of those advocates, some of whom have become quite seasoned. Um, at this work. I mean, not every one of us needs to have this as our as our profession um, to be effective. And frankly, some folks who don't have, you know, aren't working in animal protection have the potential to be way more effective because they may be standing, have a lot of standing in the business community or have the ear of the mayor uh, for some reason. And so they're even, they're even more effective than someone who would choose to do this, you know, as their, as their job. Yes. That's that's exactly right. So, Brandy, you said something along the lines of, you know, we're often, you know, the animals in air care and, and, you know, this overpopulation issue, it's often symptomatic of kind of deeper, deeper issues and, and root challenges that can be and should be addressed through advocacy and, and through po- policy. So could you could you talk a little bit more about that and and the work that you are doing through this program you just launched? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I think that goes to the need to prioritize, right, and to think about which issues, you know, we all want to do everything all at once, but, you know, how are we going to kind of intelligently tackle things? And and that has been one of the hardest exercises for us, to be honest, and it took us a while to kind of think about that. But, um, you know, we do it sort of through a variety of ways. Um, Shelter Pals, you know, is working with uh, Jennifer Fearing and with other, you know, like-minded animal welfare organizations in Sacramento in order to influence statewide policy. So last year we worked with a coalition of animal welfare groups on a number of things. You know, we were able to work with others and help, you know, pass kind of sort of statewide um, efforts to protect pets during emergency evacuations, you know, pets of owners experiencing homelessness, pets of domestic violence victims, underage kittens in shelters, right? The list is pretty extensive. And then in addition to that, we're able to provide, and this is really where Shelter Pals kind of is ushering in a new era of work for us, um, is to provide that one-on-one legal and policy assistance to each of our Shelter Pals partner shelters. And so, you know, some of the priority issues that we identified, and this was sort of pre-COVID, so you can kind of, you know, put the COVID issues on top of it. Um, but I think they, these issues still hold true, um, even in this new environment that we're they're working in. You know, agreements, right? Some of these chronic problems that shelters are operating under completely oppressive, if you will, animal sheltering contracts. Um, their incentives are not correct. They are not paid for life-saving work necessarily, they have terms that are just not working for them, and they're trying to operate in these under the confines of animal contract that doesn't work for them. So we want to help change that. Um, we want to help them fix their local ordinances and to understand the holding periods, right? We want to help them understand how long they have to hold animals so that they can optimize shelter flow. Um, you know, the the kind of hidden holding periods in California are very confusing for shelters. They don't even understand, you know, basic animal sort of movement, if you will. Um, and again, that's just like a total systemic problem. Um, we want to help, you know, clarify their obligations with respect to cat intake. All our shelters aren't, you know, very clear that, you know, if a, if a healthy stray cat is outdoors, that you can just let it be. And it's actually right. better off, um, you know. Cruelty guidelines, a lot of, um, there's a lot of kind of inefficiencies there. You know, sometimes there can be an investigation and then a a shelter is, um, you know, uh, saddled overnight with dozens of animals that have been, um, you know, confiscated as opposed, I mean, as a result of a cruelty investigation. And they don't know how to deal with these animals. They don't know how to navigate the legal system with respect to those animals, right? And so that's a problem. Community cats, right? There are so many challenges um, to navigating that system, you know, effectively. And so sometimes life-saving innovations for cats are under threat because communities don't understand the laws for managed admission or return field, or sort of they abandon these strategies if there's any kind of a, a public pressure with respect to them. So those are just some of like these chronic big issues that are faced, we believe, you know, a lot of shelters are experiencing. And, and, and I think that our data, our assumptions are correct because 
every shelter that we've contacted for a shelter pals par uh, partner thus far, you know, we've asked them, do you need help? And these are our five priority areas that we're working on right now. And granted, our list is like 20 plus, but we're just focusing on these five issues right now. Do you need help in any of these areas? And all of the shelters have said yes, 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 yes. yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, and Brandy, let me just jump in and talk about there's an interplay, too, that I think that what Brandy's offering is so important because there's there are these ordinances on the book that set in local jurisdictions and maybe even some of the ways these contracts were written that are based on, a, you know, maybe a single lawyer buried in a city or county government 10 years ago was their interpretation of what state law at that time required. And either right. A, they might not have been right at the time, but there was no one there to challenge that effectively, or those laws have changed over time. And they are now living and, you know, under regimes that they may be completely unaware. They're, they're tying their hands and they think that, quote, has to be that way. They think they have to, right. quote, follow state law. And because of what Brand, you know, Brandy and her team's understanding of state law, they can help like get them out from under these these circumstances that are their own. You know, they have control over this. They just don't realize that they have control over this. That there's so much more flexibility <laughs> under state law than they realized. And so, I mean. I'm super impressed about what Brandy is going to be able to make happen because, Risa, you know, I mean, like passing new state laws is a whole thing. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've been involved, you know, now probably a couple hundred times in doing that, but it is a whole project. And in a state as diverse as California, at best, we pass kind of lowest common denominator laws, right? Laws that, right. that the least resourced community we can have some prayer could live up to. And honestly, I, I think I've come around and Brandy's really opened my eyes to this, that like, we probably have a lot of the laws we need. And what we need is the right interpretations of those at the local level and the amount mm. of right resources, right? Yeah. And the right flexibility. And with, you know, with a spirit of communities and leaders kind of, you know, aligned around life-saving and, you know, and ending cruelty, like, we don't need that many more new laws in a state like California. We need a better understanding of how to work with the ones we have and a better amount of resources, and flexibility to work with them. So I, I think right. like Brandy's offering is like game changing and like it's actually for a little bit of money, it's going to make a lot of difference and it can happen much, much faster than waiting for yes. the legislative process. No, that's, that's incredible. And, th and that's something that I've learned in Virginia too. It's like, you know, you have, you can work with what you have on the books and it, it is super complicated and resource intensive to get something passed. But then the other pieces are, you know, having enforcement and having the resources to enforce and uphold those laws and having good relationships with the prosecutor's office and the attorney general and and all of those come into play with it, too, that are just so critical for organizations that are doing humane law enforcement and field services and that kind of work. So, and we have to do more Risa than like what I call press release, you know, advocacy where we, you know, right. we're like, we consider the outcome having passed the law. I tell advocates here, no, no, getting a new law passed is like being up at halftime going into the locker room. You know, mm -hmm. now you need to defend that law from any, um, you know, um, efforts to take it down or weaken it. You need to understand like the enforcement and motivate enforcement and you need like the resources. Um, and to, have to, to make sure people find it a priority. Otherwise, you haven't helped any animals. I mean, you really That's haven't. Right. <laughs> you haven't yet. Well, thank you so much, Brandy and Jennifer. This has been such a tremendous conversation. And I really hope this is just part one and that, Brandy, we can reconnect here in a few months and learn more about what Shelter Pals is up to and the incredible work you're continuing to do. So um, thank you both of you for making the time. And for those of you who are listening, make sure that you subscribe so you can continue to receive these wonderful conversations right in your inbox.